0: Let's turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 10. For those of you that know me well, one of the challenges I sometimes face in my life is I tend to get distracted. I'm a distractible type of guy, and my poor dear wife knows this more than anyone. It's not unusual, unfortunately, to my shame, to be heading out on a date night, and we're sitting on a restaurant, and we're having a great time, we're having a really... Great chat and yet one of the things that seems to be my brain does is I'm listening to Emma as intently as I possibly can, but I'm also listening to the tables around me to see if there's any good stuff going on. And I don't do deliberately, and there has been known at different times for Emma to be saying, "Hey, Dave, that is if she's trying to wake me from asleep. And I suddenly realize, yes, I'm sorry that I did get distracted. And she says, Okay, well just tell me what's going on. So, when I came on the table to the left, someone's just tragically died, and, and Uncle John's on the way. And, just, and I'm aware of what's going on. It's terrible. I've for praying forever in this. Uh, and it gets worse. It gets really worse when I've got a lot on my mind. When I've got a lot on my mind, it really is May Day when it comes to being distracted. I remember one time, very early on in our marriage, um, I was meant to be picking Emma up from work. And so I left the home on time, I drove the car. I was on the way to the chemist, where she was working at the time, and I just, you know, next thing I know, well, I don't know how it happened, but next thing I know, I'm pulling back into the driveway, Emma's not sitting by me, but my mobile phone is, and the mobile phone starts ringing, and I'm thinking, who's calling? What's this? And I go, like, it's Emma. Oh, no! They burst out the drive again go, I completely forgot, and I've got distracted on the way, things have come to mind, and it's one of my greatest weaknesses. I do tend to get distracted at different times. And in different ways, I think the truth is we can all be like that at different times, can't we? And your laughs and your nudges to the person next to you while I'm giving that illustration, gives you away. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes I think for all of us we get distracted, sometimes over trivial things, things that are almost funny, that aren't really the end of the world. Sometimes things over important things that we really don't want to be forgetting, and yet we do sometimes I think we even get distracted from things that are absolutely vital. And yet to our shame, we get distracted and we we move off and we move away from those things. And today I want to talk about one of those such things. Something that is absolutely vital that we don't get distracted from and yet in all reality something that I think we do get distracted from. See, I've been following this week, no doubt as many of you have, the Bali Nine duo, and all that's been taking place there with these two men um, awaiting their execution. And one of the things that's been intriguing to me is to see how Sydney Siders have followed that story as well. People have been really following it passionately. People are in uproar about it. People want to talk about it. People are intent and closely following the story of the Bali Nine duo, two men that are on death row and awaiting execution. And yet as I've thought about that duo, and I've thought about this message this morning, one of the things I realised is, you know what, our city, and sadly I think so often us, our city is can be completely unaware and we can be totally distracted from the reality that out the whole of our city outside of Christ are on death right. We rub shoulders with people every day of the week that are already in their orange suits awaiting execution. They're on death row. And yet we get distracted and forget that that really is the reality of the situation. See, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. makes it clear that every single person in the natural has sinned against the Lord and fallen short of the glory of the Lord and by nature then we are objects of his divine wrath and that's a serious and grievous thing when God's holiness his perfection collide with our sinfulness the explosion that happens is his wrath and I think sometimes we forget about it and don't think about it in any depth because we forget how holy God is and we forget how sinful mankind is and so we make them all a smaller gap and we wonder what the big deal is about. And yet the Bible paints the picture of God's wrath as an answer to our sinfulness and it makes it clear that the day of wrath is to come and that it is a fearful thing. The writer then to Hebrews says, Man is destined to die once, and after that faces judgment. It's inevitable. Everybody's going to die. That's why in the olden days... In the United Kingdom, in the early churches, they made sure that they had graveyards around the churches. They did it because they wanted their congregation walking past dead people to remind them, this is going to be you one day. This is going to be your friends one day. Man is destined to die once. The writer of Hebrews is clear about it and after that we face judgment. And then he goes on to say, and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God something that John then emphasises in Revelation when he says, for the day of their wrath has come and who can stand? You know, I think something that we don't think about enough as Christians is the day of wrath to come and is the doctrine of hell. So we're very aware as Christians, I'm going to heaven. And yet we fail to recognise that the people around us are already in their orange jumpsuits and outside of the grace of God, they're going to hell. And yet we rub shoulders with them as friends every day of the week. R. C. Sproul then says this about hell. It's so enlightening. He says, we have often heard statements such as war is hell or I went through hell. These expressions are, of course, not taken literally. Rather, they reflect our tendency to use the word hell as a descriptive term for the most ghastly human experience possible. Yet no human experience in this world is actually comparable to hell. If we try to imagine the worst of all possible suffering in the here and now, we have still not yet stretched our imaginations to reach the dreadful reality of hell. Listen. For there is no biblical concept more grim or terror-invoking than the idea of hell. I believe he's right. There is no doctrine in Scripture that is more terror-invoking than the doctrine and clarity on hell biblically defined hell is an eternity before the righteous ever burning wrath of God a punishment from which there is no escape no relief and no end and the people in our communities that we work with and go to college with that we spend time with and we live next door to are on a collision course for that day of wrath to come and the impending punishment of hell and yet we get distracted, don't we? We get distracted away from our mission and the reality that we're called to go to them and tell them about Jesus. But today then I want to talk to us about the importance of not wasting our mission. I want us to read Romans 10 from verse 5 through to 15 and although I'm going to be concentrating exegetically from 9 through 15, I want us to read from verse 5 so that we get the full effect of what Paul's saying. And here's what he says. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Let's pray. Lord, as we soberly and appropriately gather around your word today, particularly with mission in mind, Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to see Jerusalem the way the Saviour saw Jerusalem? Lord, would we look out over Sydney And in our hearts, would we feel tears? Lord, give us eyes to see the reality. Lord, we so often live in unreality. Give us eyes to see reality, Lord, and quicken our hearts to the lost this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen. You know, as we look today and spend some time looking at the importance of not wasting our mission, I can think of no more important text for us this morning than this one. Romans 10, verses 5 through 15. See, it's in this text that Paul encourages and reminds us of the profound call of God on our lives to go to the lost. He talks to us about the need for that and the importance of it. But more than that, I also think he gives us some very practical, specific things that relate to the gospel that, if embraced, will help us to not waste our mission. And so as people who have been called to go, as people who understand and grasp and are taught on this, The need to go. I think this is a great reminding text for us. help us realise how the gospel relates to that. And three glorious things around the gospel that if embraced will help us and aid us not to waste our mission. And here's the first first of three. Number one, the gospel's reach. Verses 9 through 13. And you know, if we're going to ensure that we not waste our mission, Paul wants to stop us, I think, and help us see right here that we need to grasp then and understand the gospel's reach see roll the way back in chapter 1 of the book of Romans Paul has taken the time to establish the gospel's power chapter 1 verse 16 he says for I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes I love that it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible partly because the word power in the Greek is the word "dunamis." Because I'm a bloke, I like that because that's where dynamite comes from. The whole idea is this boom. You know, The gospel is the boom of God for the salvation for anybody who believes. No one can stand against dynamite however fortified the tank of your heart is. You plant dynamite by that thing, it's going to blow to smithereens. And Paul wants to make it clear really early on in the book of Romans, that's what the gospel is like. It's powerful. It's like TNT in your hands. No one can stand against And in chapters 1 through 8 then he begins to tour us around the gospel. He explains the power of the gospel, the effects of the gospel. He talks about how we can be forgiven of our sin and justified by faith alone in Christ alone, that heaven will be our home. And yet in chapter 10 he goes back to this line of thinking as to the power of the gospel and he talks to us about the gospel's reach. Look with me at what he says in verse 11. He says, For everyone... Who believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. That's the reach of the gospel. And that's the point that he wants to make right up front. The gospel that you have in your hands, that simple message of Christ and him crucified, is powerful and in and of itself it can reach anyone. No one can stand against the power of the gospel for as we deliver that sticky bomb onto somebody's life, if God wills it and that bomb goes off, they can no, no way stand against it. Because the gospel is powerful. It's not just words it's a message that changes lives and you know I think if we're going to not waste our mission we have to grasp and understand that as Christians that everyone can get saved, that the gospel has the power to save anyone and I think that's important because it's so easy to write people off isn't it you ever done that you encounter somebody at work and they've got so many tattoos and so many piercings they look like Jesse Fenn and you start to think you know, I'm, I'm just not sure. I don't know. This It just it looks like the unlikely type of guy to become a Christian. It's like, I don't know. There's this family over here. They seem like nearly Christians, so we start to limit the power of the gospel. Or because of people's lifestyle. You're reaching out to a family and you spend time with the family and you're engaging with the family. And you talk to the husband and the wife, and the kids seem great, everybody seems well behaved, they seem to have a really good kosher family. And you can find out as you're going along that, oh, you're not actually married. And you don't even agree with marriage, just period. And you start to think, that's going to be tricky. Because if they become Christians, that, oh, how's that going to work? And so you start to think it's probably unlikely, then. it's probably unlikely that they will. Are you engaged with a homosexual couple and you know that they need Jesus and you have no problem reaching them just because of their sexuality, but as you spend time with them, you realise in their homosexuality, they're completely and utterly in love and they've been together for 10 years of their life. And you start to think, they're not going to give that up. They're not going to give up practicing that, so I suppose I'll I'll reach out to somebody else. Are you engaged with a girl... And you're talking to her, but she's got a full burqa on. And so you're talking to her about, you know, sort of like waiting for the bus or something, but you're not talking about the gospel because you think, well, she's not going to become a Christian. She's clearly really committed to a Muslim faith. See, I think we do it more than we think. We write people off. We say with our mouths that the gospel has the power to save anybody. And yet with our actions, we score people. And we'd go for people with lower scores because we think they're going to be easier. And yet that's the very thing that Paul speaks into, Making it clear that Jew or Greek makes no difference. Lifestyle, sexuality, age, makes no difference. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the gospel is the power of God for the salvation for all who believe. It doesn't matter who they are, the gospel can change their lives in a moment. And Paul knew it because he knew it because of his own life as well. So you've got to remember who Paul is, the preacher of the book of Romans. Paul used to be the greatest opponent to Christianity that there was. When you encounter Paul in Acts chapter 8, he is recorded for us as the one who is literally ravaging the church. He is a wild beast towards the church. He would effectively be the ISIS leader of the day. He hates Christians with an absolute passion. He's spending all his time thinking about how to kill Christians. What you're seeing on the news was playing out at this time as well. And Paul was one of the leaders of the pack. So when we encounter him in Acts chapter 7, at the stoning of Stephen, what's he doing? He's laughing, he's holding people's coats, so that they can stone Stephen. And it says that he did that because he gave wholehearted love for what was going on. He wanted Stephen dead. He wanted Christians panicked. He didn't want anything to do with Christ, nor anybody following Christ. And so in Acts chapter 9, we see him on the way to kill more Christians. He wants to enslave Christians, he wants to go to Damascus, he wants to jail them and bring them back. Women, children, men, makes no difference. He wants them dead if they're followers of Christ. And yet incredibly, Paul, even though he was the most unlikely of candidates to ever become a Christian, He was no match for the power of God. Cornelius Plantinga says it this way. He says, human sin is stubborn, but not as stubborn as the grace of God, and not half so persistent, not half so ready to suffer to win its way. I love that. And in Acts chapter 9, that's exactly what you see playing out. Paul is on the way to Damascus to kill Christians. And yet the risen Christ knocks him off a horse. He encounters Jesus Christ, he hears the gospel, and in his moment his legs go before him. He was an arrogant man, but his legs now go before him. He is a broken man. And he goes from a gospel persecutor and a Christ persecutor to a gospel proclaimer and a Christ proclaimer. Because his life has been totally transformed by the risen Christ and the power of the gospel. That's the guy that writes this book. If he can get saved, anyone can get saved. If the leader of ISIS of the day can get saved, anyone can get saved. The power of the gospel is totally and utterly profound. And so right up front, Paul wants to help us see, Church, do you realise the gospel's reach? Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, including me, they'll be saved. Their lives will be radically transformed for the glory of the Lord. And so if you're here today and you're a Christian, I want to encourage you. Would we not be a people then that write people off? Would we not have a score system working out how probable they are? This isn't a game of golf. This is winning people from the lost, and everybody's dead in their transgressions and sins. Doesn't matter who they are. Anybody to get saved is going to be an absolute miracle of grace. So let's go after them all, because they're all in the orange jumpsuits. They're all on death row. they all need the gospel and the gospel has the power to save anyone And if you're here today and you're not a christian then thanks for coming i don't know why you came this morning or how you come to be here but we so appreciate when people who don't know the lord actually inquisitive of finding out about us and i want to encourage you that this text is clear that the gospel has the power of god to save you as well today could change your life see this book is the greatest rescue mission ever told starts with god and how he made us and how he knitted us together in our mother's womb. But then really early on, Genesis 3, we see mankind falling from that, exchanging our life with God, finding our joy and our identity and purpose in him, to instead finding our joy and identity and purpose in in the horizontal, in our world, in our relationships, in our families. Things that were given to us as blessings by God, but not ends and of themselves. Because of that, sin became into the world. And we are, as I said at the start then, objects of his wrath and we're found in our lives, when we die on that day and we're found to be in sin, the Bible's clear that hell then will be our home. And yet 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came on the greatest rescue mission ever told. He came through the birth canal of the Virgin Mary. 33 years old, he died on a rugged cross and said, all who believe in me, I will give eternal life. He made it possible so that when you stand there on that day, I will stand there also on that last day. We will all be judged before the Lord. I will stand in my life, and he will open the book on my life, and he will see my sins. And yet by each and every sin, he will see paid for in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why heaven will be my home. I'm just the same as everybody else. And yet in scandalous grace, I put my faith in Jesus Christ, so that heaven will be my home. And yet you will stand there on that last day. The same book will come out on your life, the same sins will come out on your life, and they will be unpaid. And so you will have to pay for them in the context of hell. Jesus Christ came to save us from that moment. He came so that blots of our sins could be blotted out before him and they'd be paid for in full by him. And so whatever you have done in your life, Jesus Christ has the power to save you. And verse 9 tells us how. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. My friends, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, I want to encourage you to do that before you go home today. Confess him as Lord of your life. Make him the king of your life and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, that he really did die for you and that he really did rise from the dead as it says in scripture. And what's then the promise? You will be saved. How glorious that would be. Please, I entreat you. Don't run away from the Lord. But today if you hear his voice, choose life. My friends, if you're a Christian, I want to encourage you to let us not write people off in our outreach of people because the gospel is powerful and the gospel has a grand reach but that's not all that Paul wants to encourage us in number two the gospel's charge see the gospel really is the power of God for the salvation for all who believe what well, we have to understand as Christians also the gospel's charge look with me at verse 13 once again it says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are, they, how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? It's powerful, isn't it? For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. But his question then is as clear as day to everybody in attendance. He's saying in effect everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved but who's going to tell them that? Who's going to take the message out? For without doubt if they call upon the name of the Lord they will be saved but how are they going to call on one in whom they can't believe? And how are they going to believe in one unless they've heard of it? And how are they going to hear of him unless someone is preaching to them? And how are they going to preach unless they are sent? And it's so quick to read over those verses and think, yeah, it's really interesting. It's true, good point. And then in all reality, I think Paul is addressing each and every one of us in that moment. Because when you meditate on those verses and you realise who then has been sent, you realise that's me. And that's you. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That was said to the disciples. But the disciples is a representation of the church to come. Same happened in John 20. The disciples are addressed by Jesus and he says, As the Father has sent me, I now send you. The disciples representing the church. So who's been sent? Who's been sent to your neighbours your colleges? Who's been sent to Sydney? Who's been sent to the communities around us? As biblically defined, you have. And I have. We've been sent. So who then needs to go? We must. The gospel's charge on our lives. And the truth is, I think there are a few things in the Bible that are more sobering and provoking and daunting, aren't they? We try and distract ourselves from it sometimes, I think. Because of the challenges that we face when we know I've got to take the gospel out. That the people in my communities and my colleges and my workplaces they're not just random. But I read the Bible and I see God's sovereign over all and so he's sovereignly ordained to me to be there not only to earn money or to get an education or to live in a house he's ordained me to be there because there will be people around me that he wants me to meet he wants me to tell people about him by grace he will want to say who's going to tell him well we must but it is a challenge isn't it I think one of the greatest challenges we face I know I face is the fear of man hard isn't it you know put me in front of a thousand people to speak to who are christians that's great i don't even feel too nervous it's great you just think, praise the lord for that let's do this put me in front of one person that's slightly antagonistic to the gospel and i'm sitting in a train station with them i'm nervous my tongue feels like it's about three yards long i can't remember anything to say i haven't got my notes it's like oh, i don't know uh, yes stuff yeah, everything starts to come out really weird I start to feel really nervous you know, Emma and I arranged to have... I mean, when you live with Emma, it's like living with a female Graham. So you arranged to have a couple over, and then, you know, keen to tell them about Jesus, and you think, oh, you know, kind of a loo at that point. Or, you know, there's certain things that you just think, this is hard. I find it difficult. The fear of man is a real challenge. Us. And it's even where we see people and, in reality, understand their destiny to hell. It motivates us, but we still have to overcome the fear of man. And yet I don't think that's the only challenge we face. I think another challenge that I was reflecting on this week is our tendency towards a Christian ghetto mentality. I think that's just as dangerous as the fear of man. and it's real. And I think it takes place in nearly every church I've been aware of. See one of the great joys of church is that we get to do life together, don't we? We get to care for one another. We get to gather on a Sunday, we get to gather in the week. We get to carry one another's burdens and pray together and rejoice together. We get to celebrate together baptisms. We get to rejoice together at baby dedications. We get to do intimate and close life together as we get to know one another's names and lifestyles and offer each other hospitality. And yet I think even in that process, good and important though it is, we have to guard our hearts from starting to think like a Christian ghetto. That in effect, this is all there is, right? To me and my Christian friends and doing life together. And maybe for evangelism, I don't know, I mean, Brendan's doing God versus the word, i get a leaflet and I drop it in my neighbour's house and then I'll run away again and back to the ghetto. This is where I'm safe. This is where I like it. I think it's such a temptation for us as Christians, and I know it is, because for Emma and I, without doubt, for, for many years of our married life, we lived like this. And we did it. I remember reading a book by Mark Driscoll in about 2006. It was um, Reformed Reformation. And he was just talking to us about the importance of brandishing the gospel and taking it out. And I remember we were sitting around as a pastoral team in the Christ Church in South Wales. And we were just going around and, and it was like, you know, guys, how do you think we're doing in that? As we understand that we're missionaries called by the Lord to take the gospel out. How do you feel we're doing and we all went a bit quiet. We said, okay, well, let's just make it even more basic. How many non-Christians do we know and do we spend time with? And as we go around, we realise we don't actually know any. And I know for Emma and I, we didn't know any at I mean, I worked all day with Christians. All the pastors were Christians, I hope. All the secretaries were Christians. All the account staff were Christians. The caretaker was a Christian. In the night, I'd be hanging with Christians, equipping the saints and works of ministry. Family night, I was seeking to spend time with my wife, who is a Christian, and talk to my kids about the gospel, hoping that they will become Christians and live out for Jesus, which is something they desire to do. I go out with my wife on a date night. She's a Christian. We talk about Jesus. I spend all my time with Christians. And I remember all the way back when we were sitting as a pastoral team and just bottoming it out and realising this is not right. So easy as a pastor to excuse it away as if to say, well, we'll equip the saints and the nation. And yet Paul says to Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. Which I realised I needed to change in that. So I remember for everyone, we joined the PTA, which is a PNC right? And we joined it, because we, we thought, well, I don't know how we're going to sort of get to know people. I, I'm going to resign from being a pastor, so what are we going to do? So we joined the, the, the school PNC, and I put my hand to be a treasurer, which is just insane. So I thought, I don't even know quite sure what they do, but I'll give it a go. And I remember about a week later, they're like, well, look, it's the school disco. So we want you to come, and you're like, okay. So we, so we went to this disco. I hate dancing with a passion, with an absolute passion. But I was there... <laughs> You're right. Yeah, yeah, Trying to do something because I'm aware I've got to get to know somebody beyond the walls of the church. I remember that night we did actually meet a couple, Mike and Helen, and they said, you know, luckily I finished dancing by the time we engaged in conversation. We stuck up a conversation. And they said, oh, you know, you guys are here. We're like, well, actually, we've been here for a while. We're here just to be and see. Oh, look, we're having a few drinks back at the house afterwards. Why don't you come and and we were there till the early hours of the morning, all the kids going crazy, but we started to engage with people. There were smoking and effort and binding and all the rest of it, but it started to feel good and right to just be with people that don't know the Lord. And it changed our lives. And we never look back from that day. But we never look back from that day because we're aware we are wrongly and sinfully building our lives so much into the Christian mentality that it's as if we've completely forgotten that those in the world are in their orange jumpsuits and on death row. And it's not right. My friends, if you struggle with the fear of man, I can relate to that. But I want to encourage you. The same command, in the same line where it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. The very same line finishes like this. And behold, Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. If that doesn't encourage us in putting to death the fear of man, I'm not sure what will. Because Jesus Christ now sits at the right hand of the Father, and yet through the Spirit of Jesus, he now lives in you. And he ensures you, even when you're by yourself, lo, till the end of the age, I'll be with you always. I'll give you the words to say. I will give you the courage. I'll give you the boldness. So go there. Sometimes we just have to have the faith to realise God is with me. Jesus is with me. I'm called and as I step out in faith I believe he will help me. And if you're likewise tempted to give into the Christian ghetto mentality, I, I know it in my own life too, I lived like it for years, but I want to call you with all humility and grace to repent from that. Because it's not right. Because there are people all around us running headlong to hell. And we've been called to go get them. We've been charged by the gospel and sent by Jesus himself to brandish the gospel and take it. And we've got to do it. And no one modeled that, I think, better than Jesus Christ himself. I mean, he spent time with his disciples. They spent time sharpening one another, talking about the gospel and so on and so forth. And yet one of the greatest things that I think was placarded over the life of Jesus was Jesus' friend of sinners. It was meant as a derogatory statement. And yet it's a wonderful statement, isn't it? Jesus was a friend of sinners. And everybody knew it. He wasn't just a colleague or somebody that used to hang out now and again. No, people said, oh no, he's a friend. He he really has relationships with these people. Jesus Christ did not just stand on the sidelines of society shouting in orders to behave. Jesus Christ didn't just spend all his time on Facebook with the occasional comment about the gospel. It's not the way he operated. He wasn't thinking like that. Instructing people to behave, to come up here because this is what Christians do. Jesus Christ was not just standing at the sidelines shouting in orders. Likewise, he wasn't writing prescriptions to mankind and sending them on through, through other people. Likewise, he's not keeping sinners at arm's length because they might contaminate him. And I remember for Emily when we first started spending much more time with unbelievers, and, and the language was quite right. But well, what are you going to do about it? Are you just going to protect your children as if, like, these words are just bad words, let's keep them away until we're 18? Or are we going to teach our children in the midst of that that, that that's the way the world lives? And no, we don't do that because we follow Jesus, but we want to reach them. We're not going to tell them off that. We're not going to judge them. them. Jesus didn't come to judge He can you say? We can't stand at arm's length as if they contaminate us. We're called to go to them, and it's exactly what Jesus Christ did. Whenever you see Jesus, you see him as the maker of heaven and earth with his sleeves well and truly rolled up in the world to win them. He's at parties. He's at weddings. He's with groups of children. He's with crowds. When he's not doing that, he's with one-on-ones with people, the adulterous Samaritan woman, that would just be like, why are you spending time with her? He wanted to win. The tax collector, the rogue tax collector, Zacchaeus, no one wants to spend time with him. Jesus wants to rock up there and have dinner with him because Jesus was a friend of sins. But Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father, But his spirit sits in your heart. Who then is going to tell them now? Who's going to tell the colleagues that God's brought around you, the school friends that God's brought around you, the neighbors that God's brought around you? My friends, we must tell them. How are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? We've been sent. So we've got to go. We've got to get over our fear of man. We've got to fight the fight of just cultivating a total Christian ghetto mentality and realise when we gather, we gather to refuel, ready for mission. Because we don't go to church. We are the church. And we're called to the world. If we're going to not waste our mission we need to understand the gospel's charge we need to understand the gospel's reach and here's the third thing that he mentions in closing the gospel's privilege look at me at the second half of verse 15 he says and as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news I love that and I love it because that is not just a saying. That's something that 2,000 years ago these Romans would have understood exactly what he was on about. See, in Old Testament times where the nation's men went out to war, they would obviously try and go away from the city they're in. They would try and fight outside of the city. And then everybody in the city would be looking on, waiting for their return. And the first sight of their return would be a young man, known as a runner, And he would be running, you'd just pick your fastest guy, he'd be running as fast as he can back to the Christian world. And he would be saying to them, Victory! We won! And everybody then in the nation would be going wild, realising that they've won the war. The battle has been done. And they would say, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. My friends, there has been no greater victory ever won than that of Jesus Christ on the cross. On the cross, he defeated Satan. He defeated the consequences of sin. The punishment and penalty of sin have now been dealt with in full by Jesus Christ. And we have been called by the grace of God and for the glory of God to brandish that message, brandish that victory, and run into the world and tell them the good news. And I think that's what makes it such a privilege. Because Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. What a message. What a reach of the message. What an opportunity to take it. Sharing the gospel with people is in all reality the greatest privilege you're going to know. And would it be said of us as a church? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. On April the 10th, 1912, the largest steamship ever built, the Titanic, set sail on its maiden voyage from Southampton to New York. Sail with great excitement. Everybody was excited about all that was taking place. They wanted to break the record of getting over to New York. And yet four days in, it hit an iceberg and began to sink. And there was a man on the Titanic whose story is so often not told but I want to tell it now, a man called John Harper, whose feet were indeed beautiful, even as the Titanic sank. This is his story. It was on the night of April the 14th, 1912, that the RMS Titanic sailed swiftly on the bitterly cold ocean waters, heading unknowingly into the pages of history. On board this luxury ocean liner were many rich and famous people, At the time of the ship's launch, it was the world's largest man-made movable object. It had been reported to be unsinkable. At 11.40pm on the fateful night, an iceberg scraped the ship's starboard side. Showering the deck with ice, ripping open five watertight compartments and the sea began to pour in. On board the ship that night was John Harper and his much-beloved six-year-old daughter, Nina. According to documented reports, As soon as it was apparent that the ship was going to sink, John Harper immediately took his daughter to a lifeboat. It is reasonable to assume that this widowed preacher could have easily gotten on board this boat to safety, however it never seemed to have crossed his mind. He bent down and kissed his precious little girl, looking into her eyes, and he told her that she would see him again someday. The flares going off in the dark sky above reflected the tears on his face as he turned and headed towards the crowd of desperate humanity on the sinking ocean liner. As the rear of the huge ship began to lurch upwards, it was reported that Mr Harper was seen making his way up the deck, yelling women, children and unsaved into the lifeboats. It was only minutes later that the Titanic began to rumble deep within. Most people thought it was an explosion, but actually the huge ship was literally breaking in half. At this point, many people jumped off the decks and into the dark, icy waters below, and John Harper was one of them. That night, 1,528 people went into the frigid waters, and John Harper was seen swimming to as many as he could, seeking to lead them to Jesus before the hypothermia became fatal. Mr Harper swam up to one young man who had climbed on a piece of debris. Reverend Harper asked him between breaths, are you saved? The young man replied that he was not. Harper then tried to lead him to Christ, only to have the young man who is near shock reply that he was not interested. John Harper then took off his life jacket and threw it to the young man and said, "Here then, you need this more than I do and swam away to other people. A few minutes later, Harper swam back to the young man and succeeded in leading him to Christ. Of the 1,528 people that went into the water that night, six were rescued by the lifeboats, and one of them was this young man on the debris. Four years later, at a survivors' meeting, this young man stood up and in tears recounted that after Harper had led him to Christ, he tried to swim back to help other people. Because of the intense cold, he'd grown too weak to swim. His last words then were forced to go into the frigid waters will believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Does Hollywood remember this man? No. But no matter. This servant of God did what he had to do. While some others were trying to buy their way onto the lifeboats and selfishly trying to save their own lives, John Harper gave his life so that others could be saved. John Harper truly was the hero of the Titanic. You know, as Mr. Harper jumped in that night, he jumped into the icy cold waters because he wanted to save people. He couldn't save them from the death of the waters, but he could preach a gospel that he knew could save their lives and save their souls. And his story then is so humbling and so motivating, isn't it? My friends, I want to encourage you, our acceptance and our justification before God is in no way dependent upon our performance before him. We can't smuggle in the work of evangelism into his acceptance and justification from us. And therefore we can't live in condemnation because we're finding it so difficult. We are accepted before God and justified before God because of the personal work of Jesus Christ alone. It is his performance at Calvary That ensures that you are justified and accepted before the Lord and always will be. But now, as Christians, we have the call of God on our lives to go and make disciples of all nations as a way of outworking our salvation. And my friends, I want to encourage you over a hundred years on from the Titanic, there are men and women in Sydney in their thousands that are in the water. That are on death row. It's only a matter of time before they sink and they're gone. And the opportunity is missed. So, my friends, I want to encourage you then. Would we go to that? Recognizing the gospel's reach, recognizing that the gospel is the power of God to save anyone, no one is a match for the glories of the gospel. And knowing that we've been charged by God to this task and privileged by him to take the gospel forward. Would we do it? And then by God's grace would it be said of us as a church? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your heart for the lost. Lord, how great you are. You did not sit on the sideline and to shout instructions in. You did not send other people for you. No, you rolled up your sleeves and you came to earth yourself on the greatest rescue mission ever told. And Lord, it was then said of you, Jesus, friend of sinners. Lord, did you forgive us then for times when we give in to the fear of man? And would you forgive us for times when we build a Christian ghetto mentality into our mind as if this is all there is? and all that matters. Lord, help us then to see our culture the way you see it. Help us to love people like you love people. Help us to go to people like you went to people. And by your grace, then, through your gospel, would many be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.